This is what we talked about on Sunday in Isaiah. It wasn't that they were doing the wrong things. It's that they were doing the right things, but with the wrong heart. There were too many other things going along with the right things they were doing. They were putting um, God to the side as they went through the motions of what they thought was religiously right and proper. And so um, what does God reveal about himself uh, as we went through the rebuke? He revealed two things about himself that we considered last week. Does anyone remember what the first one was? first one was that God is God alone. Um, that was our first point last week. I'm glad it was driven home with such oomph that we all remembered it. Uh, yeah, as he's going through this, he's revealing, hey, I'm God and I'm not okay with you worshiping me and other gods. And this, we, called it, we talked about syncretism and pluralism where they're kind of meshing things together, having multiple forms of religious ceremonies that are just absolutely backwards from the way that they're supposed to be. So the first point was that he alone is God um, and that we should be silent before him. Remember, he says to be silent before me. And then the second point was what? This one we spent more time on. Yes, it's part of it. What were they guilty of? They were, they were worshiping other gods, but what else were they guilty of? What, and they're thinking about God. Yeah, there we go. Now the cobweb. Is anyone tired? Because all of you look utterly tired. No offense, but you look tired. Um, uh huh. Hey, well, that's a good problem. That's a good problem because that, that's the kind of syncretism we want. Isaiah and, and Zephaniah, where are we? Yeah. And so, no, that's good. No, um, th- th- there are many, many parallels. We're going to talk about some of them tonight. But the, the, the one that that we talked about second last week was that God is active. They were guilty of saying, if you look at verse 12, uh, 112, it, God says, at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. So what they were saying was, God's indifferent, God's apathetic. Look at the, look at the state of things. They're just kind of saying, look around. Like, we could do the same thing today. We're going to talk about that some tonight. But they're saying, look around. God's not going to do anything good. He's not going to do anything bad. It is what it is. If God was going to do something, he would have done something. But, but since he hasn't done something, he's not going to do anything. Indifference, apathy, complacency. So in their view that God wasn't going to do certain things or was going to do other things, they got to a point where they were complacent in regard to their own sin because look at how they were moving. Look at their, what the thinking led to in their actions. So it's sort of the thing we learn with our kids that behavior is always communicating something. Your behavior is always attached to the heart. So you can't just parent to the behavior. You've got to try to get to the heart of the issue. It's the same thing here. We've got to get to the heart of the issue because they have things in their heart and their mind that are coming out that are completely backwards from the way it's supposed to be according to God's design. So... They were complacent, viewing God as apathetic and indifferent. And this is where we're going to pick back up this week. I just read verse 12. Look at it again. It says, I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. I want you to keep your hand in Zephaniah, your finger in Zephaniah, and turn over to Psalm 115. We, we looked at this last week, but we're going to build on it a little bit this week. And so I want to make sure that we all see it. Uh, Psalm 115, verse 4. 
This is a really important connection. It says in Psalm 115, verse 4, Their idols are silver and gold, uh, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them, those who make these idols, become like them. And so do all who trust in them. What we considered last week is really important, is that your view of God can be an idol. That's what they were guilty of in Zephaniah. Turn back to Zephaniah. We become like that which we worship. So what we considered last week is that our view of God can itself be an idol. Along with many other gods, Israel was worshiping their view of God. They worshiped a God who they had come to believe would never do good or bad to anyone. And in turn, they became indifferent, apathetic, and really uncommitted to God and to one another and to those who were lost and to those who were of the community of faith at that point. So the roadmap that we found last week as we took this into consideration is we kind of we lay all the pieces out on the table and you find this map where if you're not being silent before God, that leads to complacency. What do I mean when I say complacency? What does that look like for real? Don't care. So what is your view towards sin when you're complacent? Who cares? What is your view towards holiness when you're complacent? What is your view towards sin and holiness in your children's lives when you're complacent? I I want us to see that like this can be any given weekday, weekend for any of us where we can just be like, who cares? I'm tired. It is what it is. It's always been like this. always going to be like this. It is what it is. And we can become complacent. So not spending time alone with God, not being silent before God, leads to complacency. And what we saw last week, you follow that map, not silent before God, complacency, that leads to being self-satisfied and pleased with ourselves. So we begin to pardon our own fart, faults. I said farts. <laughs> I said farts. I did. My nose is stopped up. That's what came out. I'm like one of those idols who has a nose but can't smell anything. We pardon our own farts <laughs> and faults. Um, complacent. I hope you have that recorded because that's a good one to keep. Yeah. <laughs> good thing I can't. It doesn't work, right? Um, complacency. Lead. I'm glad it's a Wednesday and not a Sunday. If it was a Sunday, that'd be so much worse, but it's a Wednesday. Who cares? I'm complacent. Who cares? Um, so, complacency leads to apathy and indifference when it comes to other people. And that was what they were guilty of. <laughs> the premise of our entire lives is the premise that God will act, right? That's, that's what we believe. Like, we move, we make decisions based on the fact that God's going to do something. Like, that, that should affect everything we do every day. Like, I'm not going to be even remotely motivated to do something with an eternal sort of trajectory if... I don't believe God's going to fulfill his promises. If I don't believe he's going to do what he said he's going to do, what is the point in trying to raise my kids in a particular way or be holy or give thought to eternity, much less you know, later on today? And so the premise of our lives as believers is the premise that God will act. We believe he is active in ways we cannot conceive, and we believe that he will be active in the future to fulfill all of his promises. 
So this means with certainty that everyone will be judged for sin. That's something, like, these are like basic things that we can't forget or we become complacent. Everyone's going to be judged for sin, and only those in Christ will be ushered into eternal life with God. Those not in Christ will perish eternally. Those are eternal realities that are supposed to affect every day. And the problem is, at some point, for the people during the time of Zephaniah, that stopped mattering. It just happened at some point. And it wasn't this, like, one day everyone decided to be idolatrous fools. It was something that happened over time. Something changed. Environment had an effect. Complacency set in. No one's worried about holiness. They're less worried about the law, or they're focused on the law in the wrong way. And then they're bringing in some other worship. And just over time, this happened because these, these foundational realities of Christ is going to act. That, that, is, that is what we have always believed. It changed. So we talk about these things, but the question for us is, do we live according to these things? What I want us to consider tonight is that it is possible to be both honest and empty. It's possible to be, possible to be both honest and empty. Puritans had a term for those who honestly claimed to believe in God, but remained unaffected by the reality in their lives. What I mean by honesty is like, if you dig real deep, eventually you'll find they're not actually even being honest with themselves. But when people say, I believe in God, there's not many people in Greenville. Like the large majority of Greenville would say, I believe in God. And that may be an honest statement. They may be trying to make that in an honest way. They're not going to say, I, I don't believe in God. But that can also be an empty phrase. Puritans called these people practical atheists. And this is a term that I think is important because I think it helps us to kind of look at our own lives and help us to understand what other people might be struggling with so we can steer them towards truth and not just be judgmental. A practical atheist is someone who says, I believe in God, but lives their lives as if there is no God. In your day-to-day life, you rely entirely on yourself and your own wisdom. So as we get a little more specific, it becomes a little bit more personal. So these are people who say they believe in God, but when it comes to the movement of the day, you rely on yourself and you rely on your own wisdom, you rely on your own ability, you rely on your own gifts, and not on God. So my question that I want us to kind of talk about a little bit How might we see evidence of practical atheism in our own lives? This is why I prayed for honesty ahead of time. Worrying. Yeah. How does that show practical atheism? Yeah. There's a hopelessness and worry that sets in when you're anxious and you're not trusting God with details that he said he can be trusted with. Ultimately, what is, what is the real issue there? What do, you, what do you really, really, really want in that circumstance? Your own agenda. I want it to go the way I want it to go. And all these possibilities of it not going the way I want it to go, I want those to not be possibilities. I want the, the sureness and the certainty that it's all going to happen the way I'm, I'm comfortable with it playing out. That's, that's the, the deep source of, of uh, anxiety. So practical atheism can come up in that word. It's like, 
will say, I can get through the day if I can control everything. I'll get through the day if I can control my schedule, if I can control the people around me. I'll use my words to control people. I'll control circumstances. I'll have this conversation so that I can control this conversation later. I mean, it, we do these things. That's a very real way to say, I believe in God, but I'm going to spend my whole day making sure I got my hands around everything I can get my hands around so that nothing goes away that I don't want it to go. What are some other ways practical atheism might be evidenced in our lives? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's a great, great point. You can, you can be practical atheist by just cherry picking the parts of God you like, so you create your own version of God, much like Psalm 115. Much that's what they did. They created their own version of God and worshipped it and became like it. And so, <clears throat> practical atheism and that would play out as, well, I love you know God's love. Period. He's love. And then you define what love is. And, and you have this version of God that's not quite rounded out by Scripture, and that can be... Guys, I mean, I hope we're seeing... This isn't, these aren't just crazy people who lived far away long, long ago. I mean, this is like us and our neighbors, if we're not careful to be particular to what God says. I want us to see that um, we could spend all night talking about that practical atheism. I want you all to think about that more. Like, wh- how does that show up in your lives? I mean, think about your parenting. Think about... Um, the decisions you make for your kids. Uh, think about money. Um, you can say, oh, I, I trust God with our finances, but if your bank account drops below whatever the magic number is in your head, you totally freak out. Everyone's got their magic number. Don't lie. And then you freak out. And so, um, you know, that, that, those are the kinds of things that creep in. It's, they're, they're everywhere. We could spend the whole night talking about it. But what I, what I want to see here is this. We've seen that God is God alone and God is a God of action. And so if God is a God of action, that means that God is a God of change. If God is a God of action, God is a God of change. He doesn't just do things to do them. He's bringing about a result because he has a plan for his children and because he loves his children. That's something I want to make sure we see here is God loves you. Like He wants the best for you. And so a lot of times we see something where he says to do something and we don't want to do it. And so we create this different version of God, but ultimately he loves us very much and he wants to bring about change. I want you to consider all of the action that God has taken to see to it that his children are sanctified. Dever has a line in his notes. He says, consider God's action. He came to us when we ran from him. He loved us when we hated him. He died for us when we wanted only to kill him. He saved us when we were ready to condemn him. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God some in Jerusalem during the time of Zephaniah were quietly accusing of doing nothing. Like you take into account the rest of the picture, and it's not just that they made a mistake here. They have stepped off into it here. This is the, a, not just a small ditch, but a cavern that they've stepped off into saying, God, God's not going to do anything, hadn't done anything, and ain't going to do good or bad. Look at what God's done. Look at the lengths he's gone to to preserve them up until this point. And so um, I want us to see that the activity of God was meant to change his people. I mean, he, he's coming in here. We're going to see some of the changes that he wants in a few minutes, but the activity of God was meant to change his people. So if his people don't want change, they quietly create a version of God that's less active. Do you see that? I'm going to say that again. 
The activity of God is meant to change his people. So if his people don't want to change, they quietly create a version of him that is less active. I mean, consider the reality in our culture. Love means not expecting anyone to change, right? Flaws and all. I accept you the way you are. And, and if you say that, that they need to change or you imply that someone needs to change or even today if you imply that maybe someone is a sinner, it's not usually welcomed with repentance and holiness. Generally, it's welcomed with who do you think you are? And the, those who are calling out sin are being called bigoted, hate mongers, uh, you name it. And so I want to do a little exercise because this is... You know, not expecting anyone to change, not expecting anyone to admit, okay, I, I am wrong or I did something wrong and I need to change. Um, that, that's pretty normal in our society. And, and you're only loving if you take me for the way that I am. So I want to do a little exercise here. And I want you to think, please, for the love, do not say your answers out loud. <laughs> if you could change one thing and be honest... Don't go Sunday school answer in your head. Be totally honest with whatever the first thing is that jumps into your head. If you could change one thing about one person, what would it be? Totally honest in your head and totally quiet with your mouth. Yeah. What's the first thing that jumps into your mind? You could change one thing about one person. What is it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Jerry just looks at me and says, it's me, isn't it? <laughs> Keep to yourselves. Don't answer him, Mary Jane. Don't let him pour you in that. Um, so consider what it is that jumps into your head. Okay? Now, the first thing that comes to mind, if you could change anything about yourself, what would it be? Again, we don't want to say too much. <laughs> so consider what the first thing was that jumped into your mind. Now, does your answer have anything to do with holiness? For the other person or for yourself? It might. I'm not saying everyone in here is, you know, off the wagon. But I'm saying it's a good tell. I mean, if you could make a list of five things <laughs> and five people, would it have to do with holiness? The, the thing that you want to change, does it have to do with the person's holiness? The thing you would want to change in your own life, does it have to do with your own holiness? If not, your desire for change does not match up with God's desire for change. And I think this is telling because it tells us how to move as Christians in a culture that hates change, that hates and being expected to change for any, any reason. Um, we live in a culture where I mean, there's, um, like, transgender things are becoming much more of an issue in the news. Much more. Like, we're talking like lightning speed went from nothing to everything um, in a lot of the conversations. And the issue is, the individual, no matter how old they are, should be able to say, I want to be this. And if you ask me to change, then you don't accept me for who I am, and you're loving, and you're hateful, and you're bigoted, and people like you are dangerous. That, that's the sort of the, the lingo that's going on here. 
And it's interesting because, I mean, it's changing so fast that literally there are laws that can protect, you know, a, a seven-year-old that has decided they want to be a different gender, yet they still can't get a tattoo until they're 18 because it's too big of a decision to reverse. I mean, that, that's the society we live in. I mean, things are really imbalanced. And I don't want to be insensitive to, like, gender confusion, which is a real thing, a very real thing. But we live in a society, I think much like Zephaniah's time, where if you tell people to change and you say, the reason is, is that God is going to, they will stop you before you finish your sentence because they don't believe God's going to do anything. So it's good for us as Christians to know, what kind of change do I aim for in other people? Because the reality is a lot of the Christians who are being real loud on, I don't know, Facebook or whatever else, it, it doesn't always seem like their aim is holiness in the life of the other individual. I mean, what are, your, what are your conversations like if you're at work or you're talking to someone who's lost, you're talking to someone who's making decisions, you're trying to help them. Is your goal just for them to have better behavior? Is your goal for them to accept your political view? Or is it holiness? Because um, the discussions right now are so divided. Our, our country, our culture is very, very divided. It's like you're either a progressive, liberal, left-wing nut job or you're a conservative, ridiculous, right-wing nut job. But everyone's a nut job. Like, there's no one in the middle. There's no middle ground where we can talk about maybe in the issue of life and marriage and gun control and all these things. There is very little conversation about holiness from Christians. Very little. And that's mainly in the news. So my hope is that we can not let the news say what the norm is, but we can actually be people who aim at holiness in other people's lives. And that comes with truth. That comes with honesty. So it, it's good to consider, am I just trying to get to sway someone? Because the arguments are tired. I mean, they're so tired. It's like, I can go, I can pick up my phone, my iPad, turn on the TV, turn on my computer, and find people arguing about anything. I mean, anything. Like, I don't say hardly anything on Facebook because my thought is, if I type that, in five minutes, someone's just going to disagree with me, no matter what it is, and I'm going to get mad, and my whole day is going to be shot, because I'm going to be thinking, all right, it's on, you know, guns blazing, let's go, Let, you want to argue, we'll argue, you know, and I'll go into that mode, Not, so I don't do it, because man, it's just so easy to find an argument. So for us, the thing I think we're learning from Zephaniah, at least in part, is that you aim for holiness in other people's lives. And so be careful in your conversations. Consider the words that are coming out of my mouth. Do I want holiness? Does this show them that I believe God and that I believe that affects their lives and, and I want the best for them? And do I leave any room for them to disagree? You know, that's something you should probably do as a Christian. Leave room for people to disagree with you or at least to continue the conversation later. Like, you don't have to seal the deal on every argument within five minutes of starting it. Try to not start an argument. Try to have a conversation. That's going to go way further down the road, and people are going to be much more likely to listen. I mean, that we're called to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That should be your approach in evangelism, at least in part, where you're, you're not just eager to tell them how wrong they are and tell them how to be right like you, but you're eager to have conversations that have some depth 
Because the problem is this society during the time of Zephaniah needed some depth because they were about as shallow as it gets because their view was, God's not going to do anything. So whatever I do is up to me because it doesn't matter. That's, that was the society. Look at verses one thir- look at 113. It goes on to say, their, gods sh- their goods shall be plundered, their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities, against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy... All the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end. He will make all of the inhabitants of the earth gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. If you do not change, the destruction promised by Zephaniah will come upon you. If you do not change, the destruction that's promised by Zephaniah will come upon you, no matter who you are. Like, you may think, if I make a decision and I get baptized and I'm a part of a church, that I'm safe from that. That's not true. Because you can be a completely religious person who actually has no relationship with God. That's what they were guilty of. They'd said the right things. They were even going through the right actions. But silence before God was not something that was high on their agenda. So if you don't change, the destruction promised by Zephaniah will come upon you. So the lesson for us is beware of cultivating the appearance of godliness instead of godliness itself. That's 2 Timothy 3, I think, where there was an appearance of godliness but denying its power. So it wasn't actual godliness. So think about, I mean, that's what was going on in the time of Zephaniah. They had an appearance of godliness, but there was no actual godliness. Um, ben prayed one time, and uh, it, it was in the old building, and we've laughed about it multiple times. It was one of those, he prayed this prayer, and then after the service, we're, some of us were talking, it was like, what was that? <laughs> and he prayed that we would be known as the most humble church in the area. And it, out loud, in the microphone. And, uh, and, he, and, he, and it was one of those, he kind of stopped in the middle of the prayer and then he kept going. And then we talked about it afterwards and we even laughed about it this last week that, that Lord, I pray that we would have the appearance of godliness. <laughs> you know, that was, it, was a, it was a humorous prayer. His desire was that we would be humble. That, that's what he was, his desire was in his prayer. But he said that we would be known for being humble. Which, really think about that. I mean, do, in your pursuit, do you want to be something or do you want to be known for being something? Because that kind of is an indicator about, if we're talking about the appearance of godliness or godliness itself, I want to be known as a good mom. I want to be known as a good dad. I want to be known as a great spouse. I want to be known as an available friend. I want to be known by all these things. But it's like, wait, do you want to be those things according to God's design or do you just want to be known? 
um, because so much is wrapped up in appearances. Um, so, so far we have that God is God alone, God is active, and now what we're seeing is that God is just and merciful. I'm really thankful that we haven't hit any of the prophets that are totally hopeless. Because if you just read parts of the prophets, like the one part we just read, thanks for that, I won't sleep for days, that's terrifying, that's going to happen for real, and we're all going to be judged and condemned to hell. No, because he's just and merciful. Look at 2-3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. That's a, it's a reference to Passover, where the children were hidden and covered by the blood. And so, at least I think it is. It seems kind of obvious to me. Um, but he says, seek the Lord. This is really interesting to me because he's God alone, he, he's active, and he's just and he's merciful. So what does God reveal as both a desire of his and an option for those who are guilty? Right here, what does he offer in the middle of it? I'll give you a hint. It's really good. <laughs> protection? Where's that protection found? Himself. Open arms. Open arms. This is crazy to me. He reveals it's his desire that they would seek him and that it's still an option for those who, are, who can hear. This blows my mind. Think about how wicked they are right now. Think about what they've done. Imagine if we set up the most godless, fleshly display of paganism in this place of worship. And God coming in in the midst of utter vile grossness and saying, come to me, seek me, turn. I'm available. I am here. Consider for a moment as we're I prayed for honesty, that we would be honest. Consider for a moment your deepest, darkest, most egregious sins toward God. Consider the doubts that you have regarding God. Consider the misplaced fears. Consider the giving in to the solicitations of the flesh without regard to eternal consequences. Consider the misrepresentations of God. Consider the lust, consider the pride, consider the anger, consider the short tempers, consider the lies, consider the impatience towards your children, consider the impatience towards your spouse, consider self-serving living that you try to hide. In the middle of all that, God still wants you to come to Him. Like, think about the things you struggle with the most, just the worst sins you can imagine, the darkest things, the secrets that you don't want anyone to know about. In that moment, God still wants you to come to him. The fact that he says, seek the Lord, all you humble in the land, here blows my mind. Because he could have just crushed them, right? He's a God of justice. There's no one above him. And no one has, has even remotely proven themselves holy in this moment. So he could have crushed them, but he says, seek the Lord. But it's particularly, seek the Lord, all you humble, who do his commands. So <laughs> you have to humble yourself before the Lord and actually do what he says, that's the thing. God is active and he expects change in your life. And so the change is part of the seeking him. 
We can't seek God and not change anything. We can't have this way where, oh, now we're really, really close to God, but I didn't actually change my schedule or change my finances or change my priorities. Look at 2, 4 through 5. This is where it changes. It says, For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be poured out. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left, and you, seacoast, shall be... Do you see what's happening here? I'm not going to read all of it, but I want you to see that our next point is that God is the judge of all the world. Up until 2-4, God is talking to his people who are moving in a godless, syncretistic, pluralistic, wicked manner. But here in, in verse 4, he goes to Gaza, and then he goes to Ashkelon, then he goes to Ashdod, then he goes to Ekron, then he goes to the coastlands. And he talks about judgment. So our God is, a God, is God alone, he's active, he is just and merciful, and he's judge of all the world. God will judge everyone for their sinfulness. Everyone, including you. God will judge everyone for their sinfulness. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian nation. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian home. Everyone will be judged for their sinfulness. It doesn't matter if you don't believe that he's going to judge you for your sinfulness. That, that's where we have to stand firm in faith. Because if you say to someone, I love you and I want you to be holy and I want you to have eternal life, and so I, I need you to know that God judges sin. The wages of sin is death. And some will say the wages of sin is not death. That is old-fashioned, ridiculous thinking. You're outdated. You're too far right. And this is, has nothing to do with left or right. This has to do with holiness and timeless truths. And so God will judge everyone for their sinfulness. And look at 2.15. It says, this is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. This arrogant city just made their own I am statement. I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. What we have to know is that arrogance and short-sightedness will all be taken into account. Arrogance and short-sightedness will all be taken into account. Don't be arrogant and short-sighted in your evangelism. Don't be arrogant and short-sighted in your pleading with people toward holiness. Because here they are arrogant, they are short-sighted, and we see that God takes that into account. With the naming and the calling out of each nation, God's people are called to do something. Look at 3.8. I mean, it's almost like a judgment list. God's like, so I've talked to my people. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, Cherethites, Coastland, Canaanites, Philistines, and he starts listing off the judgment list. That's happening now. That's reality. And so the question is, what do God's people do while God's doing this? What do we do when he's saying judgment is coming, no matter who you are? And it's found in 3.8. It says, therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up, to seize the prey. Therefore, anytime you see therefore, you say, what's the therefore, therefore? And you look back at all this judgment. What he's going to do, he's going to cut off the nations. 
battlements being ruined, laid waste their streets. No one walks in them. Their cities are going to be made desolate. Therefore, wait for me. That's what we're doing. Waiting for God. It's undoubtedly a challenge not to believe the cynical and complacent neighbors around us, right? I mean, I say neighbors. You may not be having deep conversations with your actual neighbor in your neighborhood. But I think as we're waiting, it's undoubtedly a challenge not to believe the cynical and complacent neighbors around us. So here's what I want to talk about for a minute before we close. How are we tempted to believe the cynicism and the complacency of our society? Because it's usually not like this. It's usually not, I'm a Christian and I totally love God, and then someone comes along and says, God's dumb, you shouldn't believe in God, and then, okay, you stop believing in God and everything changed from that day forth. That's not usually how it happens. That's sort of a caricature that sometimes we think about where, oh, someone got a hold of them, they, they walked away from the truth, just like that. Usually, it takes place over time. Usually it starts the way it did with them where their thinking was changed and their hearts were changed. I mean, Romans 12 says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do not be conformed to the world. If you're not transformed by your mind being renewed in truth, you will be conformed to the world. And so with the worldly complacency, man, God isn't going to judge me. If, and if God's not going to judge me, you better not judge me. You got the complacency and you got the cynicism Man, if everyone's looking out for number one, i got to look out for number one. So my question to you guys is, how does that play out in your life? How are you tempted to buy into the cynicism and complacency of our culture? Because in naming it, it makes us more aware of it so that we can be on guard against it. That's why I want to do this exercise. We talked about building Yeah. 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 We we had a, a sermon series that Ben preached. It was wonderful on a contrary kingdom, and the kingdom looks contrary to our culture. So the cynicism, the complacency comes in when oh you're building a kingdom, really. Because last night in Oklahoma, they took the Ten Commandments out in the middle of the night. So how's your kingdom going when that's happening? Um, people could easily say, you're on the losing team. Why would you stay on a losing team? How else are we tempted? Do you ever have conversations with unbelievers? It's not always like people with horns and a pitchfork. I'm going to make the Christian become a non-believer today. Like, what are some of the ways that things can just kind of creep into your conversations that will tempt you to buy into the cynicism and complacency? Yeah. Or, so I just kind 
gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's a great, that's a really good, honest answer where you see someone who is not an evildoer, you know? They're, they're doing good things, but they don't believe in God at all. And so you look at them and say, what more could they need? What more could they do? And so that helps us to remember we're not just aiming at behavior because her actions, that person, I don't know if it's her, that person's actions are good actions. It looks right. But the aim is the heart. And so at some point, you know, we could begin thinking the way we can buy into that is well, apparently you don't have to be a Christian to be a good person. I mean, that, that's what you look at there. You look at someone and say, man, they're, they're doing more than a lot of the Christians I know. What do they know that I don't know? What's driving them? If there's something else that can drive them, you know, and you can kind of start going down a, a trail that can become very, very confusing. And so that person is, that's a great example of someone who's not just trying to win over the believer to the lost world, you know. It's, that's someone who's doing good things and challenging you. What are some other ways that we might be tempted Yeah, it's easy to become complacent and cynical when you're not seeing the results that you want to see, especially with your children. I mean, with, with your children, you, I mean, I remember it was my mom had a, one of those examples with her brother where she walked in on her brothers when they were teenagers splitting a whole bunch of drugs and divvying it up to sell it. And she walked downstairs and told her dad and, and told my granddad. And so that was the beginning of an interesting journey. And um, prayed for my uncle for years and years and years and just kind of got to that point where she's like, I love him so much. Like, what? I, I want holiness. And I want him to know Jesus. There's a better life. And, and <clears throat> one Sunday morning, he's like 38, I think. He just shows up, walks down the aisle. Things changed. It was like, oh, if every story was like that, you know, that would be just great. But man, the leading up to seeing any kind of change... Um, that's hard. And then you can, in those moments, it's very easy to buy into the, what's the point? I mean, I've done all the right stuff. I've said the right stuff. I've prayed diligently. What's the point? And so I want you all to think about that more and just consider how not to fall for the temptation because it's subtle. I think we're having a hard time coming up with a bunch of examples because I think the examples are really subtle. But if we heighten our attention and our tenderness to those particular examples, maybe we'll see them more often. And maybe we can be on guard against them. But the, the encouragement is don't fall for the temptation. <laughs> don't be tempted. When you see something that's like, well, maybe that makes sense. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. Maybe I'm missing something. Don't fall for the temptation. Dever notes, we do not have all the facts, but you can be certain that life will not always remain the way it presently looks. That's the truth for believers. Life will not always look like this. Our knowledge is pathetically finite. So we wait, persevering in trust and in hope. So I want you all to sort of contrast that incremental complacency. It comes in over time. It's not something that just, I had a bad Thursday and I quit believing in God. That's not usually how it happens. It comes in just sort of incremental, we're complacent in this area, and this area, and then this area, and then this thought's more prevalent than this thought, and it takes place over time. I want you all to consider 
how that is different from the three mile an hour walk of, you can almost call it incremental faithfulness. I mean, if we're supposed to be growing in faith and we're supposed to be more Christ-like over time and we're, we're in a process of sanctification, it's sort of a picture of incremental faithfulness where rather than incrementally going away from God, you're incrementally going towards Him. I mean, some of us may like to think, no, I'm all in. No, you're not. Like, you can be more in. Like, you can do more, think more, have more time with God and love Him more. I mean, have the joy of that presence that you may only experience for five minutes a week. I mean, there there can be more. So it brings us to this final point that um, is really encouraging as we read through these uh, prophecies that God's the Savior of His people. Please be encouraged by that. God is the Savior of His people. Look at 3.9. It says, For at that time, the time they're pointing to is right before, it says, My decision is to gather the nations, assemble the kingdoms, and pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. And he says, But there's also something else that's going on. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. Look at how much has to do with our words. How much has to do with what comes out of our mouths. I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. In verse 14, it says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, and shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your hearts, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you and has cleared away your enemies. The aim and purpose of Zephaniah's message is worship. For us to believe and to worship, to come to a place where no matter what's going on, we will worship God knowing that he will bring these things to completion and fruition. It says, The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. How many of you would love that? How many of you would love to never again fear evil? With these nightmarish stories that we see on the news about martyrs, people losing their lives, or children being, being tortured in front of them to try to get people to renounce their faith. It's a nightmare. It's terrible. You shall never again fear evil. That's a reality for us at some point. If we stay the course and we, and we don't become complacent, on that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God's going to sing over you one day. That is a reality that I want you, I want to affect your current situation. God will sing over you one day as he comforts you with his love. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all of your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the people of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Dever notes, God lovingly gives his people who are about to endure a great trial a clear review of their final end. You need to know that a clear view of the final end with which you are going towards is meant to sustain you in your trials. Because the trials are real. We're not about escapism, acting like, no, there aren't any trials. No, there are trials. Life's hard. So that they may be strengthened, encouraged, 
and prepared to follow him down a difficult path to a worthwhile destination. And I love this last statement. He says, the day is coming when God will stop judging governments and history and will more directly rule his creation. That is such a good statement because it, it speaks in terms of what's going on now and what's going to go on. There come, there's coming a day when God will stop judging governments and history. Every one of these were governments of real countries, real nations with real people who were really against God. There will come a day when he stops judging governments and history and will more directly rule his creation. Let's pray. Lord, when we, <laughs> when we hear that, it's hard not to say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Lord, we anticipate the day when we are with you. We anticipate the time where you draw us all in, where you change our speech, where you finish the process of sanctification, and where we can see you as you are and worship you eternally. God, help that to be a rock-solid reality that sustains us through trials. Lord, there's no doubt that everyone in this room will be tempted within the next 30 minutes to somehow give in to the cynicism and complacency of our culture. Lord, I am so guilty of being a cynical person. Please forgive me. Lord, in the midst of trials, there's a way that we can have joy when we're close to you, and I have a tendency to just complain and be a whiner about everything. Please forgive me for that and help us as a people to move in holiness, to, to know that you expect change and to be eager to change the way you want us to be. Lord, help us to be worshipers who are willing to let loose of anything we're holding on to too tightly and help us not to be guilty of worshiping an idol that's just our version of you that we prefer. I'm thankful that you are a God who is God alone. I'm thankful that you're active. I'm thankful that you're just. I'm thankful that you're merciful. I'm thankful that you judge all peoples, and I'm thankful that you are a savior to your people. We love you. We praise you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.